You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Lockbit 3.0 claims responsibility for Nagoya ransomware attack. A charming kitten sighting. Spyware-infested apps found in Google Play. Threats and risks to electric vehicle charging stations, solar panels, and cyber attacks. Dave Bittner speaks with Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, about CISA's effort for companies to build safety into tech products. Rick Howard sits down with Clark Rogers of AWS to discuss the mechanics of CISO roundtables. And hacktivist auxiliaries remain active in Russia's hybrid war. I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Thursday, July 6th, 2023. The port of Nagoya resumed some container operations Thursday as it restored normal services in the course of recovering from Tuesday's ransomware attack. Bloomberg reports that five terminals are returning to operation. The Japan Times quoted the Nagoya Harbor Transportation Association as saying that Lockbit 3.0, the well-known Russian ransomware gang, has issued a ransomware demand, thereby claiming responsibility for the disruption. Tech Monitor notes that Lockbit 3.0, a ransomware-as-a-service gang, has been unusually active over the past week. Its other victims include Taiwanese chipmaker TSCM, as well as a range of organizations in the Netherlands, Spain, Canada, and the United States. The amount Lockbit 3.0 has demanded remains unknown. Proofpoint researchers have been tracking the Iranian threat group TA-453, also known as Charming Kitten, and have observed it deploying Mac malware and replacing Microsoft Word malicious macros with LNK infection chains. The approach begins with patient social engineering, contacting targets with benign emails. The hook is set only later. Proofpoint explains in its conclusion that TA-453 continues to significantly adapt its infection chains to complicate detection efforts and conduct cyber espionage operations against the targets of interest. The use of Google Scripts, Dropbox, and Clever Apps demonstrate that TA-453 continues to subscribe to a multi-cloud approach in its efforts to likely minimize disruptions from threat hunters. TA-453's willingness to port malware to Mach-O also demonstrates how much effort the threat actor is willing to put into pursuing targets. Regardless of the infection method, TA-453 continues to deploy modular backdoors in an effort to collect intelligence from highly targeted individuals. Pradio has notified Google that its researchers have discovered two malicious apps in Google Play. Both of them represent themselves as file management tools, and both of them serve as spyware. They launch without user interaction, 
and they send exfiltrated data to servers in China. They look legitimate, they run unobstructively, and they're difficult to uninstall. The two apps between them have a million and a half downloads, and the data the apps collect and transfer include user contact lists from the device itself and from all connected accounts such as email and social networks, media compiled in the application, meaning pictures, audio, and video contents, real-time user location, mobile country code, network provider name, network code of the SIM provider, operating system version number, which can lead to vulnerable system exploit like the Pegasus spyware did, and device brand and model. Electric vehicle charging stations are arousing concern about potential vulnerabilities that could have a larger impact than just the particular station or the car that's charging there. An article in Wired describes the potential impacts of vulnerabilities affecting electric vehicle charging stations. Ken Monroe, a co-founder at Pentest Partners, told Wired that his top concern was with vulnerabilities that could allow attackers to stop or start chargers in mass, which could destabilize electricity networks. Monroe said, quote, We've inadvertently created a weapon that nation-states can use against our power grid. End quote. Monroe says legislation in the United Kingdom could serve as a model for lawmakers in the U.S. The U.K. requires EV charging stations to have a randomized delay functionality of up to 10 minutes which would mitigate the impact of thousands of charging stations turning on at the same time. Monroe also stated that you don't get that spike, which is great. It removes the threat from the power grid. Other electrical technology is also susceptible to cyber attack. Security Week reports that hundreds of instances of solar power monitoring product Contact SolarView are still affected by an actively exploited vulnerability described by Palo Alto Networks last month. An exploit for the vulnerability, CVE-2022-29303, has been public since May 2022. Researchers at Volncheck found 600 SolarView instances exposed to the internet, 400 of which are vulnerable. Volncheck states, quote, When considered in isolation, exploitation of this system is not significant. The SolarView series are all monitoring systems, so loss of view is likely the worst-case scenario. However, the impact of exploitation could be high, depending on the network the SolarView hardware is integrated into. For instance, if the hardware is part of a solar power generation site, then the attacker may affect loss of productivity and revenue by using the hardware as a network pivot to attack other ICS resources. End quote. And finally, turning to the cyber phase of the hybrid war Russia has launched against Ukraine, OODA Loop has an overview of non-state actors' recent cyber operations in the war. Hacktivists operating in the Ukrainian interest have devoted some attention to interfering with Russian rail traffic. The rail operator, RZD, disclosed yesterday in its Telegram channel that its website and mobile app had been taken down by a cyber attack. The Ukrainian IT army claimed responsibility. Belarusian dissidents have also been active. The Belarusian cyber partisans claim to have successfully intruded into the systems of the Belarusian State University, wiping systems and shutting down domain controllers. The university acknowledges having problems, but denies having come under a cyber attack. Its problems are due to technical issues, the university says. And pro-Russian hacktivist auxiliaries have also stayed busy. No Name 057's Dedosia project is directed against Ukraine and that country's supporters in the West. It also hit one domestic victim, Russia's Wagner Group, whose sites were attacked as Wagnerite's weekend mutiny was underway. Coming up after the break... Dave Bittner speaks with Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, about CISA's effort for companies to build safety into tech products. And Rick Howard sits down with Clark Rogers of AWS to discuss the mechanics of CISO roundtables. 
Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. In another episode of our continuing series of interviews that our N2K colleague Rick Howard gathered at the recent AWS Reinforce conference, today, Rick speaks with Clark Rogers of AWS to discuss the mechanics of CISO roundtables. Here's Rick. The CyberWire is an Amazon Web Services media partner, and in June 2023, Jen Iben, the CyberWire's senior producer, and I traveled to the magical world of Disneyland in Anaheim, California, to attend their AWS Reinforce conference and talk with senior AWS leaders about the latest developments in securing the Amazon cloud. I got to sit down with Clark Rogers. He's a director on the enterprise strategy team at AWS. And we got to talking about one of the perks of being a CISO, the old CISO dinner roundtable format. This is where security vendors organize an intimate dinner, usually at some swanky restaurant somewhere, and invite a handful of CISOs and other kinds of InfoSec practitioners and thought leaders to gather around a good meal and in a Chatham House kind of way, talk about the mutual problems that we all face in the industry, meaning that whatever is said at the dinner table stays at the dinner table. More importantly, CISOs can talk about successes and failures that they've had, and others can learn from their experience. Out of all the things I do to stay current in the cybersecurity industry, the CISO dinner is one of the things that I find most valuable. I asked Clark about the AWS version of this kind of event. The program is actually called the CISO Circles. How can we get uh, CISOs together to talk about issues that are common amongst all of them? And then how can we help find solutions for them, right? So it could be something as simple as maybe we need to build a, a service that would help them with whatever the issue is. Or maybe they need to discuss it amongst themselves for best practices. 
So it started in November of 2020. We've gone year over year adding more and more of them, and now it's a global program. And what's really interesting, uh, especially as I look at it as a former customer, right? I used to be on the other side of that CISO desk where, hey, come come here uh, all about what CISOs are doing, or here's our new security product, whatever the case may be. And it ends up always being at a very nice steakhouse. Yeah, of course. Right? It's, it's one of the perks of being a CISO. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's a very nice steakhouse. There's usually a very flashy, well-done presentation about whatever product or mm-hmm. thing that's going to save your day from it, from, uh, you know, from, from the bad and evildoers out there. And more often than not, you walk away with a bit wider waistline, and a little higher cholesterol uh, in your blood, but you didn't really get anything out of it, right? There was very little time for networking. You were the product almost at that point, just being sold to. So the counter to that is the CISO circles, where we listen to our customers and say, what do you want to talk about? We also um, gather data from the attendees, what worked, what didn't work, what would you like to hear next time, right? So we have a laundry list of different topics that we get from people, and then that helps set up the next CISO circle. It's run under Chatham House rule, so anything that you say in there can be used by your, your, your peers that have learned sure. from you. They just can't attribute it uh, right. back directly back to you. So it's, you know, uh, it's a safe space. They didn't mind that there wasn't a 14-inch steak for them. You know, they were happy with the turkey sandwich and the, and the, <laughs> and the soft drinks, uh, but they walked away having learned something. They've learned something They've made friends, they've made connections, they, and you know, they're going to meet up again at their respective cohorts. And it's really fantastic opportunity for customers. I used to do a bunch of these in a previous life, and uh, I have some definite rules for how you do them too, right? We kept the steak because, you know, you don't get to look like this without the steak dinner, right? But the room had to be perfect, right? It had to be big enough to get everybody around the table that you could all see each other. Yep. The right. U-shape, yeah. U-shape or a circle. It couldn't be really long, okay? And the room had to be, had to accommodate all that. You had to be able to turn the music off from the restaurant so you could ah. actually talk, right? So that was a yep. key ingredient. Yep, yep. And there was always one conversation. I, when I was doing them, I would mediate, and I refused to let the table break up into smaller parties. We eliminated the panels, no presentations, nothing like that. It was just the discussion. I found more value in that than most of the things I ever did with other CISOs. It was, you know, just fabulous. Um, but, I, but I do have a story, you know, sometimes CISOs are shy and they don't want to talk until you break the ice. So when that would happen, I was doing these back when the Snowden thing was a big deal. So I would just drop on the table, Snowden, traitor or patriot, discuss. And, you know, that really, that usually set the world on fire. Right? Right. So. Yeah, uh, fortunately, we, we, we have a, a good group of CISOs and, and they all have opinions on things. So that we, is true. So yeah. we don't have to throw the Snowden bomb in, in the room. Um, yes, yesterday, uh, you know, specifically we had a panel on, you know, a very popular topic with folks and that's security and AI, mm-hmm. right? So we had some AWS employees who just happened to be, uh, PhDs in, happened, in, yeah. in, in artificial intelligence. So they really sort of laid the groundwork for what it is and what it's not and, and how to think about large language models, et cetera. So as you can imagine, that was quite a robust discussion sure. around that. The next session I actually ran, and I brought in two uh, leaders within AWS security to talk about how they operate their own security programs. So a lot of good feedback asking those questions about how, you know, how does AWS do it? 
Uh, and in one case, we had the, um, the CISO from Prime Video uh, was on the panel, right? So he was able to talk about uh, how they do it at Prime Video. So very interesting for folks. But it was the in-between conversations, you know, that I would watch CISO A talking sure. to CISO B and completely different industries, same problems. You know, whether it would be culture or how do you think about zero trust or whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and it works out very, very nicely to see that and sort of foster that safe environment for them to do so. Good stuff, Clark. Thanks for coming on the show and doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope I'll see you at, uh, at Reinforce I later. I hope to be year. there. That'll at, be at re- Reinvent later. Reinvent, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. That's Rick Howard speaking with Clark Rogers of AWS. And I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Eric Goldstein. He is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, Eric, welcome back. I, I want to touch today on this notion of security by default. I, I know that's something you and your colleagues at CISA have been focused on. Can we start with some definitions here? What are we talking about when we say security by default? Absolutely, Dave. So we really have two separate concepts here uh, that we talk about at the same time, but they are they are worth splitting up. The first is security by design, uh, and what that means is that when a secure when a product, uh, a technology product, software or hardware uh, is being created, that it is designed, developed, and built in a manner that places security top of mind that the developers are using uh, secure coding practices, that we are using memory-safe languages, that the product is undergoing rigorous security testing, that we are dealing with vulnerabilities in the development chain, uh, not leaving it to beta testers uh, to fix and find them for us, or even worse, once it's fully pushed out to production, making sure that security, again, is a paramount priority in the software development process. Let's separate that from security by default, which means that when the product is being developed, that it includes strong security controls baked in at no added charge. This could be features like rigorous logging, both logging types and logging retention. It could be uh, multi-factor authentication. Uh, the, the nuances will depend on the product, but the idea here is that security shouldn't be uh, a premium feature. It should be something that is baked in uh, when, when a customer uh, plugs in or installs the product. It should have the security features that, that are expected for the nature of the product and the risk that we're all facing. So how are you and your colleagues there at CISA moving this conversation forward? The first key point here is really having a conversation about where we think as a country the accountability for cybersecurity should lie. And we know that historically, we've really focused on the victim. You know, when there's been an intrusion, you know, we've often said, oh, well, you know, a user at the victim clicked on a spear phishing email or uh, the victim uh, didn't patch that, that internet-facing server. And, you know, that's a reasonable question that, that we should ask. And, of course, we should encourage good cyber hygiene by every enterprise. But we also have to ask, well, given the resources of that victim, their maturity, the threats we're facing, was it ever reasonable? for that victim to be expected to shoulder the security burden that they're facing? Or in fact, should we look into the tech providers to do a bit more, to make sure that perhaps there are less prevalent vulnerabilities uh, in that internet-facing server so that the enterprise could actually manage their patching burden or maybe even get out of patching altogether? 
Did the product have the right security features so that the enterprise didn't have to think about opting in to MFA or installing a third-party service? It just came out of the box, working seamlessly, no more added cost. And so by asking those questions of saying, not just how did the breach occur, but also what were the conditions in which it happened and was the apportionment of accountability there right-sized to ensure that the victim could actually manage that burden, that's the first place to start. Once we have that conversation, then we can have more specifics. And, you know, uh, we at CISA uh, recently had, led by our director, Jen Easterly, uh, an article uh, in Foreign Affairs, a speech at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, and then more recently, uh, a product that we released with multiple international partners and our colleagues at FBI and NSA, really getting more specific on what customers should expect. And so really, there's a two-sided conversation here. The first conversation is with tech providers to understand perhaps what they think of as secure by design and secure by default and how they can get there uh, through investments that they are already making in many cases. And then there's the customer side. How can we drive that market signal so customers are asking the right questions to drive the right kind of product safety uh, features and product security across the ecosystem? To what degree do you think that this is a an issue of the maturation of that technology ecosystem. You know, I think about things like, I don't know, if I buy a toaster or a hairdryer, you know, we've been working on electricity for so long that the regulations are in place. And I think consumers have a certain expectation that these devices are going to be safe. Are we there yet with cyber or how do we, how do we get to that point? I think maturation really is a part of it. And a big element is thinking about cybersecurity as a fundamental safety issue. Uh, you know, Dave, you mentioned toasters and hair dryers. Well, you know, those have security features because none of us uh, want our houses burning down. Right. You know, certainly, when we think about how technology is used, not only across infrastructure, but in all of our homes, certainly, you know, adversarial misuse could result, and, and we've seen in some cases, you know, really negative consequences. And so we see at CISA, and I think the broader community is also aligned here as really a fundamental safety issue. You know, as you mentioned, Dave, we've seen in the past a lot of these changes uh, in adoption uh, of strong requirements, uh, strong, strong controls have been driven by regulation. We don't think that that is necessarily the only path here today. Uh, we think that we can make we can do a lot of work uh, in the voluntary trust-based model that we insist uh, adopt. And we think that if we can get uh, specific enough about what are the characteristics of a safe technology product, we think that we can bring together providers and customers to send those market signals and drive the right change, even in the absence of or as a precursor to any sort of compulsion that's coming down the road. Yeah, I, I guess, so, you know, when I look at the reality in today's marketplace, when a lot of folks will just log on to Amazon or some kind of online retailer and, you know, find the cheapest uh, home security camera that, that they can, uh, it seems to me like it's a bit of an uphill battle here. That You and your colleagues there have, have your work cut out for you. We certainly face a challenge, but we think the challenge is also the opportunity, right? Because we know that, well, if the cheap product is the insecure product, uh, then those manufacturers should be driven out of the market. Uh, we think that those companies, and there are dozens, uh, hundreds uh, of tech companies in America who are investing every day in their product safety and product security, those are the products uh, that should be bought and used on American networks 
not those that are sold for a cut right pr price that are that are introducing insecurity into our tech bloodstream. And so we think that if we can clearly differentiate those products that are safe and secure from those that aren't, well, that's an advantage to American companies. That, that's an advantage to our economy, to our prosperity, and to our, and to our innovation. But we need to figure out how to really clarify what safe and secure means, and then reflect to the consumer, both the individual and the enterprise, how to differentiate so we can send those market signals that incentivizes those companies that are doing it right and relegates those companies that aren't doing it right to go sell somewhere else. Hmm. All right. Well, Eric Goldstein is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it as always. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think about this podcast. You can send us an email at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help you keep a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is me, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show is written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 